everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy Bement, your host, saying hello, happy end of April, if you're listening to this when this episode comes out. And uh, let me give you a heads up as to what's going on in this episode. Let me give you a rundown. First, we will do like we always do. We will go ahead and take a look at the news. And there was actually some news uh, just came out in the way of Doctor Who Comics. So we will take a look at that. And then for this classic episode, we are going to jump right into a couple interviews. Um, we're going to go back way back to episode four of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is when I was just getting started. And you'll probably hear that things are kind of rough uh, just a little bit compared to what you're used to, probably. And uh, we're going to have a couple interviews. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, outside of Doctor Who, I'm just a big science fiction fan in general. And uh, I really... I grew up watching uh, Star Trek Next Generation. That was a show that was on when I was a teenager and young adult. And I've been really been enjoying this uh, current season of Star Trek Picard on Paramount+. Plus. This final season of Picard has been kind of a fan dream come true. Uh, reuniting the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation and just lots of callbacks, lots of uh, really interesting things. And it's kind of made me uh, wax nostalgic for Next Generation. Well, way back in Episode 4 of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, uh, IDW Publishing had the rights to Doctor Who Comics, and they also had the rights to Star Trek properties, which they still do. And so they kind of combined the two, and they did an eight-issue maxi-series called Star Trek The Next Generation Doctor Who Assimilation Squared. And this story uh, had excellent artwork by J.K. Woodward, and also had some, uh, the story was written by, first by Tony Lee, and then it was taken over by Scott and David Tipton. And back uh, in episode four, I kind of did a, a bumper edition uh, of Doctor Who panel to panel, and I chatted with quite a few people who worked on this uh, story, including Scott Tipton and Tony Lee. So I thought for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, since I've been watching Picard and have been enjoying Star Trek, I thought you might enjoy hearing uh, the behind the scenes of how this uh, story, Assimilation Squared, was written. So you'll hear first a, a chat with uh, writer Scott Tipton, and then you'll hear a follow-up interview with writer Tony Lee about uh, their career, their work on Doctor Who, and their work on Assimilation Squared. So that's what you'll be getting this episode of, of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. So, with that intro out of the way, let's jump into the news, because there is a lot of it. In Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Panel to Panel, let's start out like we always do by taking a look at the calendar and seeing what is coming out or what has come out for Doctor Who in way of comics. Uh, for Considering we're towards the end of the month of April, it's been uh, quiet since the end of March. However, on uh, Thursday, April 27th, Doctor Who magazine number 590 will be out digitally as well as uh, on the newsstands over in the UK. So make sure you grab yourself a copy of that. Uh, that you know will continue on with the liberation of the Dalek story and also have lots of good content. Because Doctor Who magazine has been hitting on all cylinders, so make sure you pick that up. In other Doctor Who comedy news, big news came out. Well, it was kind of to be expected, considering that about a month ago, uh, the BBC announced that, the doc that they were going to do a Doctor Who multi-platform story called Doomsday. And uh, Titan Comics was listed as one of the, the participating companies in this story. And uh, news came out just a couple days ago regarding this. Uh, Titan Comics, I'm reading the press release here. 
Titan Comics is thrilled to announce a two-issue comic series launching on July 5th, 2023 as part of the Doctor Who multi-platform story Doomsday. The comic series will feature fan-favorite character Missy on the trail of new character Doom, who makes her comic debut. It was announced last month that Titan Comics are participating in BBC Studios' multi-platform Doctor Who story, Doomsday, to celebrate Doctor Who's 60th anniversary. Doomsday is a standalone transmedia series across multiple platforms and will allow Doctor Who fans to follow Doom, the universe's greatest assassin, as she travels through all of time and space in pursuit of the Doctor to save her from her ever-approaching death. She only has 24 hours and a vortex manipulator to save herself before her fate is sealed forever. Available in comic stores and on digital devices at release, Titan's Doctor Who Doomsday No. 1 comic is an adventure starring Doom in her comic book debut. Using her vortex manipulator, she'll do anything to find the tempestuous time traveler, the Doctor, including cavorting with the Maleficent Missy. Every hour, a new adventure, every hour closer to death. <clears throat> Excuse me, Doctor Who Doomsday, number one, is written by Eisner-nominated Jody Hauser, with art by Roberta Ingranada. The comic debuts with two covers for fans to collect, from celebrated artist Pasquale Colano and a photo cover variant. Jake Devine, editor, Titan of Titan's Doctor Who comics, says... I'm so excited to be working with Jody and Roberto once more, and I can't think of a better team to introduce this dazzling new character to the world of Doctor Who comic books. Throw Missy into the fold, and you've got one sensational adventure. So there you have it. There's going to be a two-issue miniseries, I'm assuming July 5th and uh, beginning of August, uh, tying in with the big Doomsday multi-platform crossover. Uh, and we get Missy, and it's by uh, our traditional... Artist writer team of Roberta Ingranada and Jody Hauser doing the writing, and uh, something to look forward to. It's nice to have some uh, news about some new Doctor Who comic content from Titan Publishing, which I'm looking forward to because I always look forward to it. In other Doctor Who comic news, this one's kind of a, a personal pet project of mine. Uh, as you may know, I have a website called DoctorWhoComics.com which I put Doctor Who uh, comic news on and other things I find of interest in. Uh, related to Doctor Who comics. Well, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that uh, a few months ago I had uh, animation storyboarder Rich Morris on, who back in the day, of the, in the David Tennant era, he did a, an online comic strip called The Ten Doctors. And I was a big fan of this strip when it was coming out back in the day. And, uh, in fact, I have it all printed out and collected together in a three-ring binder that's in my, my Doctor Who comic collection. Well, uh, I had a chat with Rich Morris, and uh, I think uh, people really enjoyed hearing about the Ten Doctors and what he had done. The problem was it's kind of hard to read the Ten Doctors because Rich, at that point in time, didn't have it up on his website. And uh, he had sent me some sample pages, which I had... Uh, put up on my website and put up on Facebook so people could see, kind of get an idea of what Rich had done. Um, it was a big, really complex story involving all 10 doctors at that point and uh, a fun space romp of kind of thing. Well, uh, Rich and I have uh, joined forces and beginning on May 1st on DoctorWhoComics.com, you will be able to read the 10 doctors in its completeness and entirety. Uh, starting with or getting two 
parts of the story or two pages of the story per week. I am going to be putting up uh, two parts every week of Doctor of Rich's The Ten Doctors story for you to read and enjoy. Um, that means that the story is going to take a, a little while to to tell, but for me, it's kind of a nice way to have some fresh new content on my website, and hopefully you will check it out and go to drwhocomics.com and take a look at the 10 Doctors as well. If, um, if you're a fan of Doctor Who, if you're a fan of multi-Doctor stories, if you are a fan of animation, and uh, primarily, particularly Chuck Jones, um, Rich's art style is very, very reminiscent of uh, animation legend uh, Chuck Jones. And if you like Chuck Jones's work on The Grinch or Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or any of the Warner Brothers cartoons, you're going to love seeing Rich do Doctor Who in that kind of style. Um, I think it's going to be fun. I look forward to putting up uh, the 10 Doctors uh, week by week and page by page and uh, allowing you to see Rich's creativity in action. And not only that, but Rich is going to provide extra content. He said he might include some new illustrations for me to include uh, as things go on, uh, some commentary as to how he did things or where he came up with ideas for things. So I think it's going to be fun. I think it'll be interesting. It'll be nice to revisit uh, some classic doctors, classic companions, and I hope you are along for the ride because I think it's going to be a, a fun romp. So make sure you start checking out DrWhoComics.com. Make sure you bookmark my page so that uh, every uh, twice a week you'll be able to stop by there and get a new part of The Ten Doctors. And that is it for the news this time around on Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Let's uh, jump into a couple classic interviews. Way back in 2014, IDW Publishing had the rights to Doctor Who and they were putting out lots of Doctor Who content. Uh, at least a monthly Doctor Who comic book, and they were doing some specials as well. One of the specials that they did was the Star Trek The Next Generation Doctor Who Assimilation Squared uh, maxi-series. It was an eight-issue series uh, taking Star Trek The Next Generation and Doctor Who and pairing them up since IDW had the rights to both, and it was one heck of a story. Um, way back in 2014, Doctor Who Panel to Panel was in its uh, infancy as a podcast and back on in episode four, I did a, a, a big episode, uh, hour and a half long, all about Star Trek The Next Generation Doctor Who Assimilation Squared. And I chatted with quite a few people in that episode. But I thought with the fact that uh, Star Trek Picard season three or the final series just ended on Paramount Plus, and I've really been enjoying that. That's been my kind of must-see TV every week. I've been watching each episode as it's come out without fail. Um, I've really been enjoying Star Trek Next Generation, or uh, Picard anyway, uh, and seeing the Next Generation cast come back, and it made me think back finally onto this uh, Assimilation Squared story. So I thought for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, since it's a classic episode, I'd represent a couple interviews for you. The first interview that I uh, want to share is with Scott Tipton. He is one of the three people that wrote Assimilation Squared. Uh, he and his brother David Tipton took over when Tony Lee uh, left the project about halfway through. 
And uh, in this interview, you'll get to know Scott a little bit and hear about uh, what it was like working on combining two of his loves, which is Star Trek and Doctor Who, into a story. And um, after that, you'll hear a chat with uh, author Tony Lee. Tony Lee was the main Doctor Who writer for IDW back then, as you will hear in this interview. And he had uh, been commissioned to write this uh, Assimilation Squared story, and about halfway through, he kind of had a difference of opinion on what he wanted to do compared to what the editors uh, from IDW wanted to do with the story. And so instead of... uh, going on continuing on and doing what they wanted he just decided to leave the book which totally makes sense you know it's an author's prerogative if he wants to tell a story and the higher-ups don't want to tell that story then i think he has the right to leave and and uh, move on and you find somebody else to tell that story so anyway with that this intro out of the way here's a couple interviews the first one you'll hear is with scott tipton And the second one is with Tony Lee from way back in 2014, way back from episode four of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Hope you enjoy it. Today on Doctor Who Panel to Panel, I'm interviewing Scott Tipton, who is one of the co-writers of the Star Trek Doctor Who, a Simulation Squared uh, series. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing well, sir. Good. Thank you for joining me. Um, I haven't talked to you before. I, I know you from all the various different Star Trek stuff that you've done for IDW. Um, are you a big Doctor Who fan, or did that just kind of work out itself? Well, I've always been a lifelong Doctor Who fan. Not to the extent of Star Trek, just because of the you know, the realities of growing up in America. You, you didn't have the kind of exposure to Doctor Who that you did for Star Trek. Yeah, Star So, I mean, I, as a kid, I grew up watching Tom Baker... And so I, I always knew of it. I really enjoyed it. But I didn't really get into it until the, the relaunch with, the, uh, with uh, Eccleston and David Tennant. And when those came along, I became a huge fan. Mm-hmm. So, so you've been a Star Trek fan then as well since you were a little kid? Oh, yeah. Star Trek from, from since I was a little kid in the 70s, watching it on KTVU in San Francisco every day at 5. Oh, very cool. I was watching it on uh, reruns at 3.30 in the afternoon. I remember rushing home from elementary school on my bike to get home. Yeah, to watch Star exactly. And for, Doc, for Doctor Who, you had to find it on the weekends on PBS. And it was it was a trickier find. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like the majority of people that were Doctor Who fans back then, they just kind of happened to cross it. Yeah. And then I met a friend of mine in uh, in junior high who was a much bigger fan. And this is kind of during his like, – I'm kind of dating myself – this was the advent of the VCR, and he was the first guy I knew who had VHS tapes built up of all the Doctor Who episodes. Ah, uh, yep. That was where I started. I kind of got a backlog. I started watching more and more of the of the, the Baker stuff, and even a little bit of the uh, of the Peter Davison. Ah, oh, very cool. Um, how did you get into becoming a comic book writer? Well, the joke always is that whenever somebody asks, uh, "How do you get into comics?" That you know everybody gets in a different way, and then they board that way up so no one else can do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whose joke that is, but it's very accurate. I, I like that. Yeah, I actually got in. I, I get it. I got in kind of sideways. Um, I grew up a huge comic book fan, and the plan for me was always going to be that I wanted to work in comics. And from and from like junior high through high school and all through college, I st- struck up a friendship with an editor at Marvel named Mark Gruenwald. Oh yes. Yeah, Mark was a great guy. And I used to be a letter hack back in the day. I would write letters to all the all the um, letter columns in Marvel Comics. And 
And so he, we got to know each other at conventions. He spotted my name badge, and he would hassle me about the letters I wrote because he always put it on my stuff. Uh-huh. And actually, it's funny. Uh, I really got to know him when one day I was in junior high school, and I get this phone call, and my mother comes in and says, hey, it's got Mark's on the phone. I thought it was my buddy Mark. Uh, so I pick it up, and it's Mark Grunewald. And I got my phone number back in the days before the internet. Uh-huh. And he was calling to let me know that I had complained that in the new, new Hawkeye series – the artist wasn't drawing notches on the backs of the arrows. <laughs> and so he was he was in his office with Mark Bright, who was the artist, making him draw all the notches in the backs of all the arrows. <laughs> and so we got to know each other uh, pretty well. I would see him every year at conventions, and we'd talk. And the plan was for me to move out to New York and apply for a job as his assistant after I graduated college. And the summer of my senior year of college, Mark passed away from a massive heart attack. Oh, yeah. And that kind of put the kibosh on me with comics. I still read a lot of comics, but the idea of working in comics didn't really work for me. And I wound up going into advertising instead. Uh-huh. And I did that for for years and years. And then just through this weird happenstance, um, a friend of mine who also worked at the same ad agency, uh, Chris Ryle, he and I wound up running one of Kevin Smith's websites. We ran Movie Poop Shoot for, for, for like two years. Oh, really? one, I, remember, yeah. I remember that website from back in the day. Yeah, yeah, and, and there was a point where Kevin wanted to make it a go as a real pop culture news website. And so uh, Chris was the editor-in-chief, I was the news editor, and I would also write this month this weekly column on comics, and we did that for a while. And through that, Chris wound up getting a job, the job as editor-in-chief of IDW. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, look, um, if ever anything comes along you think I'd be a good fit for, I'd love to apply for it. You know, yeah. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying give me a job, but if there's something that sounds good that you think I could do, well, let me try it. Mm-hmm. And I did a couple little horror anthologies for him. And then he got the Angel license that IDW did. Yeah. And I said, I love Angel. Let me, let me, let me make a pitch for it. Uh-huh. So I pitched for one of the first Angel series, and uh, I and Fox liked my pitch for a, a Spike graphic novel. And that kind of got me writing Spike and Angel for a while. And then IDW got the Star Trek license. And I was like, oh, dude, dude, look, just just open the door crack. I'll get my way in there. Just get, let me pitch my stuff to, to, to CBS, uh-huh. and that's all I'm asking. Yeah. And I, I started, well, as soon as I got the license, I pitched, and one of the first things I pitched for was a Klingons miniseries. And I got that through to CBS. CBS really liked it. And I've been working for, for CBS and IDW writing Star Trek pretty much ever since. Yeah. I know you've been doing quite a bit of Star Trek over the years. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just a it's a it's a good relationship where, I mean IDW likes what I do, CBS likes what I do, the numbers are good in the sales, so and I'm always I'm always happy to be writing Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely worse gigs out there than writing Star Trek comics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and then it also came up that you know because I've been doing Star Trek for so long and uh, you know that, that that relationship was good when the possibility of the Star Trek Doctor Who crossover came along that my name came up in the mix as from CBS and from IW. And so then when they come to me and I said, do you have any ideas for Star Trek Doctor Who? I said, oh, yeah, I have some ideas. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice segue. That was just I was going to lead into was uh, asking how that the whole Star Trek Doctor Who came about. Was it just the uh, CBS and, and the BBC wanting to do something with the both properties together? Or was it IDW? It was, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was a nice confluence of events where IDW held both licenses and was doing well with both licenses. And the year previously, I think it was, um, IDW had done a Star Trek Legion of Superheroes crossover with the with DC Comics. Uh-huh. 
and that had done pretty well. And then, so I, I think IDW was just thinking, well, what else do we have that we can do that would be a appropriate crossover with with Star Trek? Because IDW was they're they're very big on taking their properties and cross pollinating them in ways that make sense. Yeah, I mean, I remember if you remember a few years before that they had done their their um uh, infestation series where it was like all their properties versus zombies. Yep, I remember that. And that was the one where they came to us and said, do you think you can do Star Trek versus zombies? And we were like, hmm. And I was like, well, we can do a zombie story that would fit in a Star Trek story. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of making the challenge for us is to make Star Trek fit in that world while staying true to Star Trek. Yeah. And so, and uh, our take on that, CBS like that, so that's why that's that got in a mix. And it was, I was thinking, as those things happened, the next logical thing is we already have BBC and uh, uh, um, working with us on Doctor Who already. Let's try this out. And they just they came to me and said, we have we have some ideas. Both BBC and CBS are interested in doing this. Can you think of a good concept for it? Mm-hmm. And we're like, sure. Well, <laughs> I love a lot of what you want. Yeah, to, uh, to me, being a Star Trek and Doctor Who fan, I'm kind of the opposite of you. I'm more of a Doctor Who fan than Star Trek, but I've definitely watched Star Trek over the years, you know. And uh, I'm a huge Next Generation fan. That's my my era of choice. And to, it seems like a perfect fit between the two of Star Trek and Doctor Who. And there's plenty of, of cross-pollination between fandom. Um, yes. That is, it's to me, kind of a no-brainer to combine the two together and, and do a comic series out of it, because you know it's going to sell. Yes, and I was also happy that they wanted next generation for it because that that was because we, we we were given certain things. They said it had to be they had to be um uh, the Matt Smith Doctor, and it said it had to be the um the uh, next generation because that at the time it was coming up on the the uh, anniversary of Next Generation I think twenty five years, uh-huh. and Next Generation was airing on BBC America and doing very well. Oh yeah, so that's this is why we wanted we wanted to, can you can you do something with for us with for the Picard. And with and with uh, Matt Smith, and we're like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then it, as we were going along, I remember we had we had scripted the thing out, and we we were about to begin, and then um, Chris Ryle, who is editor in chief at IW and was overseeing the project at first, uh, he came and said, you know, I think I can talk them into letting you use uh, Shatner and Tom Baker. I think we can make room for that. If you can make that, actually, at first we were told. No, no, no other backstory. Uh-huh. Just that's all you get. But I think I can talk him into that. Well, I think we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, they just say, "Oh, yeah, twist my arm, why don't you?" Yeah, no, no, I, I don't. I don't want Shatner in my book. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the 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 nice, enjoyable kind of surprise parts for me out of the story was having that nice flashback with the with the change in art style and uh, having Shatner and Tom Baker. No. Yeah, and we and we tried to keep that secret as long as we could uh, for for the monthlies because by the time the series got announced and we were when we started talking to the press about it, we didn't know that 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 we were, we were doing the Shatner the Shatner issue, mm-hmm. but with, as long as we could, it's so hard to keep a secret nowadays. But the, in the age of the internet, and so I remember just oh, I guess I'm just gonna lie to every single person, every single reporter I talked to. No, no, no other captain, no other doctors, no other captains. Nope, nope, no. Yep. <laughs> we, just, we wanted to try and keep as much of that secret as we could. And I thought the Sharp Brothers did a great job because the art and the whole series, I'm a huge fan of J.K. Woodward. And I think he did an amazing job in that series. Yes, he did. And, and but I think it was smart to kind of break that style for the for the Shatner sequence because it is so jarring a change. And yeah, it's such a um, – to go from uh, Woodward's more uh, painterly – Illustrative style to something that does seem a, a bit more retro for the for the Shatner sequence. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, 
the the listeners will know in other uh, interviews for this episode of Panel to Panel, uh, we talk about how the JK's artwork has a very realistic type feel to it, yes. and it to to me it it definitely takes you into instead of reading a Next Generation or Doctor Who comic, you're almost like watching an episode of Doctor Who or watching a Next Generation story, and the the flashback changing the art style to more of a traditional comic art or even more of like an animated type look to it. it. It gives you that that retro feel to it and takes you into a di- kind of a different mindset for the classic stuff. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought, I thought it was a really good choice. And, and the Sharp Brothers did a great job with it. Yes, they sure did. Um, how, how did the, the storyline come about? Um, that was, I mean, and they, weren't, they didn't give us any sort of like rules as to what we could or could not do. Um, it, it basically just, uh, it was my brother and I sitting down as we first wrote the pitch for this thinking, okay, what's the, what will be the best? And we knew it had to be uh, two villains, one from each one. Cause that's the only way, cause th- this is the tricky part with this is you were serving two masters. We have to make CBS happy and we have to make the BBC happy. So we, we looked at, we looked at both of the, um, the, the rogues galleries for, for both properties. And the Borg and the Cybermen just seemed like the 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 best fit. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they're they're very similar. So teaming them up would seem like the the most logical and fun choice. And then you know, uh, not to spoil it for anyone, but the book's been out for a couple years now. <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that that also would give us a gr- some great dramatic uh, tension later on when that alliance goes south and those two start start messing with each other. And that that made sense in a way that other vil- other villains from either properties didn't. Mm-hmm. And to to me, it, it works out well with the with the Borg and the Cybermen because there's been so many debates in fandom over the years of how the Borg are ripoffs of the Cybermen and the Star Trek. Yes. They know Borg are are different than Cybermen because you know they're they're not quite the same and having being able to to have the two. Uh, enemies work together, and then me being a Doctor Who fan, happy that the Cybermen kind of come out on top. So, <laughs> you know, that, that that made me happy inside. Yeah, uh, we were when we were at, at uh, Gallifrey one two years ago. We were in one of the smaller meeting rooms, uh, meeting talking to fans about the book, mm-hmm. and somebody was who was clearly um, uh, uh, very invested in the Cybermen. Uh, asked us why did why did we have the uh, the uh, the Cybermen uh, defeat the Borg, and we're like, well, you know, really honestly, that was just the way the story went. I mean, one one of them had to win out, and I mean, I, I, it could just as easily have gone the other way, but that was that was what the way we felt that the story was most interesting. It wasn't that we thought one was better or worse than the other. Uh-huh. You know, it just it just that that that, that seemed to me the, to be the most uh, the the most interesting way for the story to go, and he's like, oh, all right, and then he left. <laughs> like he had his one question, he wanted to answer. All right, very good. <laughs> he, just, he was out of there. Yep, apparently that was the only answer that he needed. <laughs> yeah, all right, thank you, thanks, sir. Uh, I I thought all in all it was a really well done story. Um, I I JK's artwork I thought fit the story perfectly. Um, were there any Parts of the story that you had had written in that you had to take out due to uh, BBC or CBS saying no, we we don't want you to do that or no, you can't use that. CBS and the BBC were both really, really, um, really easy to work with on this. I, I, we anticipated problems. We were afraid it would be something where we'd write something, it would go to the CBS, and they would request changes, and then those changes might might not sit well with the BBC. But to our surprise, that never happened. 
I mean, both both licensors are naturally very protective of their properties. Sure. So each would want to make sure that their that their guys looked looked not not better than the other, but equally 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 brave, equally involved in the story. Mm-hmm. So we we from the beginning we were very careful about how we crafted it. So we tried to give, and it, it's also tricky because you, we had like you know eleven main characters for the uh, you know for our protagonist. Yeah. And then, and then also balancing the the um, with the Borg and the Cybermen. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, plates to keep spinning. But we really tried to keep everybody as involved as possible, and also just not letting one character overshadow the others. Sure. So there was, and so there was nothing we really tried to get in there. Once we were scripting, there was nothing that we tried to do. There were there were certain things that we knew from the get go that we couldn't do. We couldn't use the Daleks because of the whole thing with the Daleks are are owned by by a separate entity than the BBC. Yeah, by Terry Nation's estate. Right. So any 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 use of the Daleks in any of the properties requires another check to, to Terry Nation, uh-huh. and we knew that wasn't happening. So we couldn't use the Daleks. We couldn't use the Guardian of Forever. For in Star the Star Side because of because of the 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 long the long running um uh back and forth between CBS and Harlan Ellison, which is ironic now that I'm writing that series <laughs> where I'm retelling that story. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah, but I mean. Other than those kind of like bigger picture issues that we always knew we, we, we and, and didn't really fit into our story anyway, there was nothing that we wanted to do and we couldn't. I mean, there were things I wanted to do that I, just, I could never figure out how to do and ultimately had to abandon. I always wanted to get Rory and Amy into Starfleet uniforms. Oh, yeah. That'd be such a, such a great image. Uh-huh. But I could never find a way that would seem natural and organic to the story. Yeah, to, to me. And if I did it, it would just it would have just felt forced in and in, in a kind of like fan fiction way because I wanted to see it. So I'd let that go. Yeah. Um, but what, I, what but what I did do is after we were all done, I commissioned from uh, J.K. a painting to hang in my comic shop in North Hollywood, and it's a painting of everything we wanted to do but we couldn't. So uh-huh. we have we have um we have uh, Rory and Amy in uh, red shirt uniforms, about to jump through the Guardians of Forever as Daleks, <laughs> and we have uh, the TARDIS laying behind them and Shatner and the Doctor uh, trying to stop them from jumping in. Oh really? <laughs> so I was like, I want everything we couldn't do in one painting. Yep, get it all into one picture yeah. that you can hang up on the wall. Exactly. It, it looks it looks gorgeous in my comic shop. <laughs> Did, did, is there look in hindsight? Is there anything that you or any characters that you feel kind of got the uh, not as much use in the series as you had liked them to or wanted them to? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I, to this day, I've never really gotten the chance to write for Wesley, mm-hmm. and I just I have never just for one thing as most of the, of the next generation stuff was writing. Usually, we tend to write things kind of between seasons or. Uh, um, between episodes from the existing timelines, and we never seem to be writing anything that happens during a point when Wesley is on the ship. Uh-huh. And I like the character a lot. I've been wondering if I'm going to find a way to work Wesley into a story. I haven't done that yet. Of the story of the characters we had, I think probably Beverly got the least exposure. Yeah, and they just that happened a lot with that character. I think because in in classics in classic Trek, McCoy's function wasn't just as the Doctor; he was also Kirk's conscience. Mm-hmm. And Beverly doesn't serve quite that same function in in Next Generation. That tends to go a lot more towards Riker, to to be kind of like the the voice that that Picard is always responding to and playing off of. Yeah. And I didn't I, I didn't I didn't I didn't get enough to do with with Beverly, and I didn't get enough to do probably with um 
with Deanna Troy or with with Jordy. But again, I mean, I've, I've got eleven characters plus well, plus the condo that makes twelve. So there's just so many characters to balance in this. It was, Man, it was, it was tough. There's an awful lot of stuff for you to kind of shoehorn in there with yeah. just, just so, the amount of characters that you had to work with. Right. So we tried to at least give every character a couple good spotlight moments. Like we made sure to give Beverly a good conversation with Riker after the after we introduced the idea, the idea of the conduit. Mm-hmm. Just just to, to give Beverly some – we have some stuff with Beverly talking to um, talking to the ponds in, in Sick Bay and Deanna Troy as well. So we, I tried to give them uh, some spotlights where I could. But if, as we began writing, it became clear that on the, on the next generation side, it was more of a Picard and Data and Worf story. And actually, that's part of why we introduced the, the, the concept of the conduit, is it gave the, the next generation crew, and particularly Riker, a more human investment in what was going on. Mm-hmm. By, having the, by having the conduit character be, uh, be not only a, a assimilated Starfleet officer, but a friend of Riker. Yeah. So that was that was that was a, a part of what we did is to try and give them a, a bit more of a stake. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that 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 was the trickiest thing about the series was all the all those characters. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Uh... So of course, naturally, the next job we get involved eleven doctors and forty five companions <laughs> <laughs> because because that wasn't difficult enough the first time. <laughs> yeah, it, but you made that one work as well, and uh, hopefully, sometime here down the road, I can talk to you about that whole series. Oh yeah, anytime. That 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 was that was, that was seriously was a joy. I bet I I totally enjoyed reading it. It was a, a nice treat for the anniversary of Doctor Who, and uh, and I, I did, they did a really good job of of picking some some good artwork or good artists for for each era of the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that and uh, to, to go back to Trek Who, we had not had a chance to work with J.K. before this. I mean, I knew his work, but we never we and I I think I might have met him once or twice, but we hadn't we hadn't worked together. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. You, you, you always try and write your series um, to 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 accentuate the style of your artist, and so that was easy enough because we we I'd read his his work on Fallen Angel, so I knew that you know we, we want to go big with this, we want to go big landscapes, give him room to work. But what I didn't know was how much of a Star Trek fan he was, because uh, generally in my other Trek work. Um, so all my artists uh, had been uh, artists who work in Italy, and like Dave Messina is a big Star Trek fan. Uh-huh. But some of my other artists had not always been big Star Trek fans, so I usually have to give them giant files of reference material, photos and screenshots and maps and and schematics and ship designs. Uh-huh. And I expected, and so we did this for the, we started to do this for the first issue, and the first few pages come back. And J.K. had added all of this Star Trek stuff that we didn't ask him to, but that was perfectly fit the story. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, it, it was very clear that he was mixing Next Generation and movie Trek styles for the, the control room on on, on Delta. Uh-huh. And once these, once these pages come come in, we're like, oh, oh, he knows Star Trek. Oh, this is great. Not only because it meant much less work for us reference-wise, but from then on scripting things, we could just tell him, we want this from that, and he'd know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I bet that was a, def- so, a definite help. So that way you. Oh, that was that was a huge benefit for us. It it it, it immediately meant that uh, that um whatever we'd be doing uh, on the Trek side of things, uh, he he would get immediately. And he was also uh, he came into it a huge uh, Doctor Who fan, which I didn't know he was either. Yep. He was he was dropping in in jokes and stuff that we didn't even realize we didn't put there, and then we got the pages back and we noticed them. Uh-huh. So yeah, the JK was a perfect fit for the series. That's awesome. I um one one final question. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that 
IDW doesn't have the rights to Doctor Who anymore. I remember uh, right before they had lost the rights, there was talk about doing a sequel to Assimilation Squared. Yes, there was. Uh, can you can you give me any little hints as to what the storyline was going to revolve around? No, I can't. <laughs> there's always a chance. <laughs> you know, there's always a possibility that either it might happen in the future, or that I mean, some of those ideas that we have for that I might be able to use for something else. But sure. I, what I will say is that unlike the first time where it was very much you're using Picard Next Generation and and uh, Matt Smith. CBS was really happy with this, and they told us this time, okay, the, the the toy box is open. Take anything you want as much as you want. Oh, really? So we had big ideas for the sequel. It was not going to be just one time period. It was not going to be just one crew. It was going to be epic. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I, I'm just picturing a, a, a pairing or a team-up between Q and the Master. <laughs> it's funny. Everyone always goes to Q with the Master for 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 a sequel, uh-huh. and uh, I love Q. The Q was great. The tricky thing about Q is it's just hard to write him in a way that that gives your characters, your protagonists, any agency in the story. Yeah. The whole story, they're always just at his mercy, and so it, it's really hard to get any jeopardy into it because you know it, it's ultimately going to end with Q kind of smugly snapping his fingers and and things are over with. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, there was talk at the beginning of this series about using Q and we just like, no, it's it's so hard to do. Also because a big part of the um, appeal of the Doctor is that the Doctor is always the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. And if Q is there, he's not. And I mean, there so there is the, there is the idea of well, how does the Doctor react to that? And that might be fun for a scene, but that'd be tough to extend for eight issues. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, I, yeah, and you know, the, the, there were the the master probably would have shown up if there was a sequel. <laughs> I, I, I will say that. <laughs> well, hopefully, maybe sometime down the road, uh, IDW and Titan can work out a crossover of some sort. It's a big world; anything's possible. <laughs> Well, sir, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about this crossover, and uh, I look forward to um, your upcoming City on the Edge of Forever adaptation. Thanks. And anybody who wants to check out what I'm doing can always follow um, follow me um, on Facebook at either my name, Scott Tipton, or at Blast Off Comics on Facebook, which is the name of my comic book shop. And yeah, uh, City on Forever starts in June, so check it out. Yeah, looking good. Awesome JK work as well. Yes. Yeah, he's doing great, amazing stuff on this. Awesome. Something to look forward to. Well, thank you very much, sir, and have a good day. My pleasure. Exterminate. Tony Lee. First of all, let me thank you for joining me on Doctor Who Panel to Panel to talk about Star Trek Next Generation slash Doctor Who Assimilation Squared. It's not a pleasure to be here. Um, I was just wondering, how did you come to get on to the project? Um, well, the project had already been... Uh, was well. The project was already quite far down the line by the time I turned up. Uh, Scott and David Tipton had been talking about uh, doing something like this for a long time with uh, Chris Ryle. Um, I think I was Scott or David Tipton. I think they're still childhood friends and they've known each other a long time. And over the years, they've always been talking about doing something like this. Mm-hmm. And the BBC had never really been that com- uh, comfortable about doing it. They're, the BBC had been very sort of... Um, cautious over doing such a crossover 
And then at some point, I mean, the, the rumor that I've heard is that basically somebody went straight to Moffat and Moffat said, that sounds great. Why, why not try it? Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, who knows? It could be someone at BBC Worldwide. But somebody somewhere said, let's go for it. And because Scott and David had been working on this before this point, they had the story and they'd, or they'd worked it all out. They knew it was an eight parter. It was already done. And by the time I got brought on board, um, the pitch was already with them. Uh, and the script was already about to be written. Um, the reason I got brought on more than anything else is because I was pretty much the longest-serving Doctor Who writer at IDW at that time. Uh-huh. I'd just done the 12-part um, 11th Doctor run, and they wanted somebody who had the 11th Doctor's voice because they didn't feel that Scott and David had it. They didn't feel that Scott and David Tipton just quite had... The, the, the franticness and the insanity that the 11th Doctor had. I gotcha. But I kind of, as, as I came off uh, the ongoing, I pretty much walked straight on to the uh, crossover. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I was wondering, is if the, the BBC wanted you to do the voice of the Doctor just because you were somebody that was tried and true, you had the voice of Matt Smith. No, no, no. It, was, it was purely Chris Vile at IDW who decided it. He was the one who emailed me. Oh, okay. That's cool. So, um, what happened? I'm, I'm guessing that you your schedule just got busy after the fourth issue, or no, I left the book. Oh, did you? Yes. Um, to be perfectly honest, it, it, there's nothing bad about it. The problem was is you had three writers, you had uh, two licensors. Each person had about a dozen people in there making decisions. There was just so many cooks in that kitchen, and the kitchen wasn't that big enough. Oh, and right. To be perfectly honest, Scott and David had been there from the start, and it just made sense. By the time we got to the fourth issue was scripted, they had already worked out what was going to happen with the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And after that point, obviously, we sat down, we had a discussion. I had a discussion with Denton Tipton, the editor of the Doctor Who um, crossover, and my editor of the series. And I just said, look, there's too many people bouncing around because they would write the script. It would come to me. I would then make changes to the script. I would add in scenes. Um, I would reduce scenes, I'd extend scenes, I'd change the dialogue, it'd go back to Denton. Denton would then send it back to them. They would then look at what I've done and they would change or tweak or accept or whatever. It would then come back. By that point, we've done four or five bounces backwards and forwards before the licenses have even seen it. And by removing me from the process, I felt that it would actually streamline it a lot more. And at this point as well, J.K. Woodward had gone from having months to do an issue down to literally a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So anything that would reduce that pre-drawing time so that, you know, so that JK would have another week to work on, it just made more sense. Yeah. And at the time, I was starting to work out ideas for a few other things, and it just seemed like a good idea because, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't as happy as I could have been with the job because there were things that I wanted to put in that didn't go in because of time and constraints and things like that. Mm-hmm. I felt that it was a lot easier just to sort of back away rather than getting to around issue six or seven and getting really, really annoyed about things. And as it was, about a year later, we all met up at Gallifrey One and went over it, and we were fine about it. And they'd been having the same suggestions at the same time as I had as well. So That's awesome. So it all worked out well in the end. Yes. I, I I personally I really enjoyed the story. I thought you know the it was a nice it had a nice fast pace to it. It was a it was a good uh, fan type story, but at the same time it had a good a good plausible plot to it. 
You know, uh, I was happy that the the Cybermen kind of overpowered the Borg, and and they kind of stood out as the 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 chief uh, evil in the book. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, I mean, is is you, you're never supposed to speak ill of the hand that feeds you, but I mean, there were points of the story that I wasn't happy about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt we could have done more in those eight issues. Yeah. Um, then we came from two different worlds. I mean, Scott and David do a very more um, do a much more decompressed style of storytelling, whereas I'm very much straight into it. I mean, one of the the, the tipping points was a a scene I think in issue three where the Doctor first meets Guinan. And the original script, I think something like about six pages were spent with the Doctor and Guinan in their discussion. And I brought it down to two. Mm-hmm. Then we sort of moved it back up. And a lot of the times I'd be taking scenes and reducing them by half. And then there'd be like a middle ground. So I, I felt that much more could have happened. And I felt, I, I mean, personally, and I've said this publicly as well, as I felt more could have been done with Rory and Amy. Because I did feel that Rory and Amy were kind of put to the side. And I feel that this was mainly, though, because Scott and David came from a Star Trek background. So the, the Star Trek characters seem to be more important. Mm-hmm. I've written this entire subplot, which didn't go in, which possibly might have been for the best, where you've got um, Rory did nothing, pretty much, the entire series, which annoyed me because Rory's a nurse. Mm-hmm. And he was actually the one person out of all those people there who could have done something. Yeah. He knew how to do battlefield triages and stuff like that. So there's no, in my idea, Rory during the fight would have been basically seconded to Doctor Crusher, and then you've got a great little freeway where you've got Rory now being you know, helping Doctor Crusher, who's this incredibly hot redhead. Mm-hmm. You've got Amy seeing Rory with this incredibly hot redhead and being mildly insecure about this and being a bit annoyed that he's flirting with her and he's not flirting with her and she's just getting the wrong impression. And it would have just given them even a few more pages, but it would have given them something else to do. And I feel that they were kind of underused. Yeah, but then I, that I was totally my, that. But that was my territorialness because I was the Doctor Who guy on the project. So I wanted them to have a larger space. But with the eight issues, there wasn't time for them to have that, if that makes sense. I mean, I think I also wanted to get to the action a lot quicker. Um, but then again, with so many bad guys and so many heroes, you can't really do what you want to do in this sort of situation. Yeah, very true. There's an awful lot of stuff to try to, to shoehorn in there. Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you've got two established canons of, like, you know, decades long. You know, I mean, my favorite part of the entire thing was probably in issue three, which was the Tom Baker story. Because you kind of managed to shake off a ton of the problems. But even then, we had issues with trying to work out exactly how the Doctor could remember that. Because Doctor Who and Star Trek were two different worlds. You know, you had in Doctor Who, Star Trek is a TV show. It's mentioned in one of the Knife Doctor stories. Uh-huh. So, you know, you've got the situation where how did the Doctor find himself in the world? So we had to make sure that the MacGuffin that got him there worked. And if that was the situation, how did that affect this? And if we're going to do a fourth Doctor story, how does he remember it if he's only just turned up? So, And, of course, the finding the answers to those things changed the entire story because then suddenly he's rewriting his entire history. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's... It's an awful lot to work in there. I, I enjoyed the, the the classic Trek and, and Tom Baker segment. I, I really like the fact that they changed the art style and the artist. Oh man, making it more sort of the animated style was spot on. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I definitely it, it took you into a different uh, realm of of both series. No, I agree exactly. And, but uh, I I thought. Uh, what what 
you did on the series. Uh, the I was I was going with the theory that you were brought on to to give the voice to the doctor and to to make sure that the 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 Doctor Who stuff was how the BBC or whoever wanted it to sound, and it sounds like that's pretty much what you were there for. Primarily, yeah. I mean, as I said, the story was pretty much done and dusted. Uh, I was there just to make sure, you know, I mean, I, I, I belittle myself in a way because there were chunks of story that I did put into it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, anything that I put in was argued in. Anything that I put together was argued together. Because that's the thing what happens when you've got four or five passionate people. Everybody wants their voice to be heard. Yeah, it's it's uh, an awful lot of, of people wanting to, to put their spin on things and trying to get it all into eight issues is a mighty big challenge. It is. I mean, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I know that. I mean, before the IDW lost the license, we were talking about doing a sequel, and there's about you know there were several things bouncing around, and I pitched a, a sequel to myself. And in a way, doing this was actually quite cathartic because I was able to look at how it was done, look at what worked, and look at what didn't, and to see, see if I could actually put something in. I mean, it was an incredibly decompressed story. I mean, I've seen reviews that have really picked apart the fact that. The Doctor and the Overland Enterprise, they don't even really fight the Borg until pretty much the second book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's logistical problems that we had because of the way it worked. For example, you know, you bring the tension that the Borg are attacking Earth. They've got to save Earth. And then the next thing you know, the Cybermen have attacked Borg and they're now going back to the Borg homeworld. And there's an element of, well, now the threat's gone. But we had to do that to keep it moving, to keep the story going, to move to the time traveling section. Yeah. There were other parts we wanted to do that the BBC wouldn't allow. But to be perfectly honest, my, my job was a very small job in this, which is why when I left, it was quite easy for me to walk out. If um, David and Scott had decided that they didn't want to do it after four issues, it would have been a totally different story because they it was their voice more than anything else that was in those first four issues. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, we have plenty of other Doctor Who stories that you've written over the years to to enjoy with your <laughs> singular voice. And uh, well, not for much longer, though, not for much longer, because in June, uh, IDW stopped um, selling them because the license IDW had ended in December with six months to sell off stock. So there's no more Doctor Who books being made by IDW, and in June you won't be able to buy them unless you find them on Amazon or in collectors or. You know, unless somebody goes and buys all the comics that IDW have left and sells them online. Well, I, I know they they just announced, I believe it was last week, that uh, all their Doctor Who comics through Comixology are only 99 cents apiece. Yeah, well, they, they won't make much money off those. It, the money goes after the uh, end of the month. So, yep. yeah, yeah, until the end of time, I believe the line goes. Well, do you still have more Doctor Who stories that you want to tell in comic book form? No. No, I've, no I, I, I walked away from Doctor Who... Um, I mean, when I finished the twelfth issue, when I had the thing of the Doctor and Father Chris, the Christmas fighting um, robots to save Christmas, I'd kind of burned out a little bit at that point because, I mean, at that point I'd done, I'd, I'd turned up, I'd written the Forgotten, mm-hmm. I'd at the same time that I was writing the Forgotten, I'd done a one shot, which was the uh, the Time Machination. And as I was finishing The Time Machination, I was already pi- um, uh, pitching out the first 12 episodes of The Tenth Doctor's Ongoing. By the time I was on issue 12 of The Tenth Doctor's Ongoing and writing the, pre- the next four issues, I was already blocking out the first 12 issues of The Eleventh Doctor's Ongoing. 
So by the time I hit issue 12 of the, the 11th Doctor, I'd been solidly doing Doctor Who for probably about four years without a break. Mm-hmm. And I know I was starting to suffer and my work was starting to suffer. Walking away gave me a chance to sort of do something new, which was the um, the Star Trek and Doctor Who crossover. Uh, but then walking away from that, just I, I had to take a year away. I, I had to walk away from it and go, okay, you know, let's look at other things. And I had been, I was doing a whole load of other things anyway. But what I did find is that by walking away for a year, it meant that when I came back to IDW last year, when I came back to do the uh, what turned out to be the final four-parter, um, I was infused again. So, you know, it was something that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But even when I came back to do Dead Man's Hand, I'd always said in my mind that that was going to be my last. I wanted something that was my biggest last story. I wanted something that would link to the forgotten. And as it was, when it turned out it was the last story of all time for IDW, there was an element that it was nice because I was able to do a final sort of like, I mean, it completely loops back to the forgotten. I'm able to do such a big thing. If I did another story now, if it was for Titan or you know, Doctor Who magazine or something like that, I think it'd be anticlimactic. Yeah. Now, I think I think I've done it now. I've, I've done the stories I wanted to tell. Um, there are other stories that I never wrote, but, you know, I, they don't have to be Doctor Who stories. I can always, you know, change things and move around and do other stuff with them. Mm-hmm. It's the joy of writing. You know, that's the joy of these things. Comics are a glorified fan fiction, you know, but tie in books are a glorified fan fiction. You know, as long as anything that isn't the show is just someone saying, I would really like to see this. Uh-huh. And there's no reason why I can't go, oh, I'd really like to see this with someone else. Yep, sure. I mean, there was an entire chunk of story I wanted to do uh, two years ago, which never got done, which I've thrown into the story Crash Landing, which I'm doing with um, Stefano Martino. So, you know, all stories get, you know, <laughs> cannibalized and regurgitated. Recycled and used <laughs> in something else. Exactly. Well, I, I would love to, to uh, chat with you again sometime about your years writing for Doctor Who and IDW, because some of the stories in there are some of my favorites. I, Kevin the Thank Dinosaur you. is one of my favorite companions of all time. <laughs> You'll be surprised how many people love Kevin the Dinosaur. Every convention I go to, there's always somebody who talks to me about Kevin I, the Dinosaur. I, I was one of those that brought him up at uh, Chicago TARDIS probably about three, four years ago. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin was, um, Kev, actually, in fairness, Kevin the Dinosaur was actually Gary Russell's fault because Gary Russell was the script editor of Doctor Who at the time and I'd contacted him and said, look, I want to do something different and we'd already gone with two companions that were a part of the TV show and I said, look, you know, the biggest companion that I know in comics is Frobisher. You know, let's do something like that. And he said, you won't get away with it. And I said, well, let me at least do two episodes with Kevin as a companion. And he went, yeah, go for it. So it was all his fault. And then when it became such a success, he just kept looking at me going how 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 have you done this <laughs> <laughs> i've yet to see someone cosplay kevin the dinosaur though i'm still waiting for one that could be a challenge i've, I've had emily winter and Matthew finnegan turn up which was absolutely incredible uh, but i've never had a, i've never had a, a cybernetic 20 foot high talking dinosaur which i'm very disappointed with well maybe somebody who listens to this podcast might uh <laughs> get a get a whim and creativity and uh, you'll see one here in the not too distant future <laughs> well hopefully i mean the next time i'm in america is uh, long island hoon in uh, november so you know see so yeah, a clock's ticking guys get it sorted there we go the challenge has been has been put out the gauntlet has been tossed down <laughs> 
Well, Tony, I uh, appreciate you joining me for uh, talking about the Star Trek Doctor Who crossover, and I hope to talk to you again sometime down the road. Do you have any uh, upcoming projects you want to plug? Um, I've I've got my Heroes and Heroines uh, Joan of Arc story comes out next month. I've got a couple of reluctant reader novels in the UK coming out. I've got a project that I believe is being announced at WonderCon, but I can't talk about it at the moment. Um, and I've just got some screenplay stuff that I'm doing at the moment. Now, the only thing I'm really pushing is Crash Landing, which is the project I'm doing with Stefano Martino, who was also um, one of the artists for Doctor Who in The Forgotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's basically, um, the easiest way to explain it is it's Flash Gordon meets Dracula by way of Stargate. That's an interesting combination. <laughs> Vampires with jetpacks. Okay, yes. <laughs> awesome. Something for me to look forward to. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and we will talk to you soon. Pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed those classic interviews with Scott Tipton and Tony Lee. Uh, Jumping way back to 2014, wow, almost a decade ago, uh, back when I started this podcast. It's I remember back when IDW was putting out Doctor Who Comics, I was running a comic shop in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was always looking forward to seeing uh, a Tony Lee Doctor Who comic because he had some really great comic stories and great ideas and uh, artwork by Matthew Dow Smith, who, if you look at Matthew's artwork from then to now, it's uh, really changed for the better and uh, he has grown as an artist and uh, I've talked to him on this podcast uh, several times about his artwork and you can uh, check those out as well. But you can also check out, uh, if you go back into the archives, go to archive.org and do a search for Jeremy B. Ment or Dr. Who Pay on the Panel. You can also listen to my interview with J.K. Woodward, who was the main artist on Assimilation Squared, whose uh, painted artwork just brought this whole book to life, which I'm you you heard us talk about in these classic interviews. So if you have never read Assimilation Squared, go on eBay. You can find the issues relatively cheap. The collected editions cost a little bit more, but uh, the 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 comics themselves you can find fairly uh, inexpensively, and they're a very good read, so I highly recommend them. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. I want to once again mention that starting on Monday, May 1st, the first installment of The Ten Doctors by creator Richard Morris will be showing up on DoctorWhoComics.com. We will be putting out a page of artwork every Monday and a second page every Thursday. So that will give you a reason to stop by DoctorWhoComics.com and check out The Ten Doctors. It's a it's a fun story. If you're a fan of classic Doctor Who, I promise you, I guarantee you, you're going to love this. If you're a fan of uh, animation, you will love Rich's storyboard layouts that he uses to tell his story. It's not quite a comic book story, but it's also... Uh, It does fit into that category because it's basically eight panels uh, every installment of Doctor Who fun and uh, goodness of classic Doctor Who combined with a little bit of the new era as as you get to see the ninth and 10th Doctors in there as well. So please do me a favor. Make sure you check out my website, DoctorWhoComics.com, for all your news and uh, other fun stuff, including the 10 Doctors starting on Monday, May 1st. So until next time, this is Jeremy Bement. Saying best wishes and bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, 
on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you. Thank you.